Well, good morning. Uh, The Lord be with you. Dear Lord God, we thank you for your presence in our midst. Thank you, Lord, for being known to us in the preaching of the word and in the breaking of the bread. Thank you, Lord, for the worship we've just gotten to under... um, partake of and even now as we look at uh, this story from scripture would you use your holy word your written word to jump off the page to us would you cause our hearts to be open and receptive to the word made flesh Jesus Christ our Lord and it's in his name that we pray this amen it will close it's waiting um, so last week, this is part, of, we didn't put this down on the, um, on the purple sheet, but this is technically part five of six, but you don't need to go to any of the earlier ones to be able to know what's going on in part five of six. So um, basically what I've done what, during the month of October, I took three weeks and I looked at three different um, women in particular. I did Bible portraits of women in particular from the Old Testament. Um, so we looked at, oh, someone's going to have to help me remember, who did we look at? We looked at Sarah the mother of all who believe, because when we look at Abraham, um, he's always called the father of all who believe. But when we look at Galatians 4, we see that Paul himself said that we who believe in Jesus Christ, we are the ones who are free. We are born of as, as though we are children of Sarah, um, because she believed, even though she laughed, she believed that the Lord would, even in her old, old age, bring the child of promise to them. Um, so even in the midst of the barrenness, Um, that she and her husband experienced. She had faith that they would indeed be the parents of the child of promise. So there's Sarah. Then we looked at, uh, we looked at Rachel and Leah and my bad joke was that I made them share a week um, because they knew about sharing. And we looked, (laughs) thank you. Um, And we looked at what what it looked like for them to strive for the promise that they were striving, they didn't know what they were striving for, and they were actually competing. It was a baby race, um, and someone very cleverly called it an arms race, that they were um, racing to see who could have the most children, the most sons, who could compete. But sadly, they not, neither one of them ever reached the thing that they were hoping for. Rachel had the love of Jacob, but she longed for children, and she never had enough children to satisfy her, her, her desires. And then uh, Leah longed for the love of her husband, and the Lord made her fertile made her have children, what she didn't necessarily want. Um, And so you see, even in their lack, that the Lord meets them and woos them to himself, especially Leah, that she um, praises the Lord even in the midst of her great suffering. So Leah and Rachel, and then we looked, and Leah is the mother of the child of the promise because of um, her son Judah would be the ancestor to Jesus himself, the lion of the tribe of Judah. So we're going to look at that a little bit more today. The third person we looked at was Hannah, who was a woman of prayer. She prayed faithfully. Um, she, in her great need, her, her great desire, she came to the temple of the Lord, the tabernacle of the Lord, because the, the presence of the Lord was still in the tabernacle and not yet in the temple in Jerusalem at that time. And she poured out her heart before the Lord. And um, she's so humble and so needy, and the Lord desired to do great things through her, and specifically through her son, Samuel. And Samuel was a great prophet, the next great prophet after Moses, really. And through him, the Lord brought redemption to the people of Israel. Okay, so that's the Old Testament ladies that we were looking at now. We're looking at the New Testament ladies. And last week, we looked at Mary, the mother of Jesus. And we looked at Mary, the mother of Jesus, specifically as a disciple. Very often, um, there are Christian traditions that want to call Mary our mother, 
But that would then be putting ourselves in the place of Jesus, wouldn't it? If we were to look at Mary and say, she's our mother. Well, almost never in scripture are we told to put ourselves in the place of Jesus, except to take up your cross and follow him. (laughs) Um, Very rarely when you look at scripture and you're asked to place yourself in the story, are we intentionally supposed to be in Jesus' role. Rather, Mary is not our mother. She is Jesus' mother. She is the first disciple. She had faith that the Lord, in the Lord's word to her. She had faith that the, that, um, the miracle that he was going to do in her own flesh um, was something that, was not, that would be okay, even in the midst of what would probably be great suffering, social rejection, potential stoning even. She had great faith that the Lord was doing something wonderful in and through her. And her obedience and submission to the Lord is made manifest in that one phrase, that great phrase, Behold the handmaid of the Lord words out of Mary's mouth. We talked about her humility, her receptivity to the Lord, her willingness to serve sacrificially, to suffer um, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the salvation to be brought through her son, Jesus. Um, So we said that she was a disciple because of that obedience and submission to the Lord, because of her desire to serve and willingness to suffer, and because also um, that she recognizes that through Jesus Christ will come salvation. And we hear that in the Magnificat. Um, If you were in the 9 o'clock service, we sang, Tell Out My Soul. Did you notice? That's Mary's song. It's based on Mary's song. Tell out my soul, the greatness of the Lord. She knew as she said those words that God was doing a new thing through her son, that her son would be the Messiah. She believed that salvation would come through Jesus. And so like her, as we believe in our salvation through Jesus Christ, we are close with our Savior Us today, 2,000 years later, we are close with our Savior through faith in Him. We are united um, to Him, and through Him we are united with God. Um, And that closeness with our Savior, something I said at the very end was that Mary's closeness with her Savior was biological. How cool is that? I talked about how um, some biologists, I read something once in college, and it stuck with me, that um, the biologically apparently and maybe there's a scientist who can confirm or deny in this room but apparently a mother will carry in her body um, for the rest of her life the cells from the children that she (coughs) carries Um, that there's something about the DNA from the children that she's born or even the pregnancies that she's carried even if the pregnancy was miscarried there's something about those cells of that child that reside within her body for the rest of her life. There is a closeness between mother and child. And that closeness characterizes Mary's discipleship, doesn't it? She is so close to her Savior. What a wonderful thing. Then we can say, blessed is she. Wow, she was so close to our Savior. Um, And we too are that close spiritually to our Savior Jesus because we are united with him. And when we receive the body and blood of Jesus Christ, What a close way, a tangible, physical way of reminding ourselves we are united in Christ by faith with him and his destiny is our destiny. We will rise to new life just like Jesus Christ has risen to new life. Okay, I'm going to take a breath. That was all the summary. Those were the last five weeks. Go listen to them if you missed them and want to hear more. But now, today we're looking at another disciple, and I did this sort of arbitrarily. I was drawn to these three women that that I looked at last week, this week, and next week. So Mary, the mother of Jesus, the first disciple, and then I was drawn to, I'm always drawn to the Samaritan woman. I love this passage from John chapter 4. There's something about it that's really incredible. 
And I first really studied it way in depth when I was in seminary because I was looking at the Gospel of John. And I don't know if you know this, but there is more back and forth dialogue in the Gospel of John than in any of the other um, Gospels. There's a lot of back and forth dialogue with Jesus all throughout the Gospels, but John in particular gives us a window into these interactions one-on-one between Jesus and someone else. And usually what Jesus is doing is saying, come on, come on and put, put your faith, put your trust in me. Remember, he does that when he calls the disciples, Nathaniel in particular in chapter 1. He does that um, with the Samaritan woman here, but the ver- chapter before he did it with Nicodemus. Remember, Nicodemus comes at night and Jesus is really trying to encourage him to put his trust in him. And it goes on all throughout John's Gospel. Well, this is a really long interaction, dialogue, back and forth between Jesus and this unnamed woman. So we're going to look at that. Um, Let's see, anything else I need to tell you before we start to read? No, I don't think so. Let's go ahead and read. We're going to read the Samaritan woman known by Jesus. Oh, yes, I did say next week we will be looking at another disciple. We'll look at a very... um, much lesser known disciple. She <coughs> followed Jesus, we know that, and we can make some inferences about the rest of her life after Jesus' death and resurrection, but we don't know a whole lot. So we'll look at Joanna next week. She's barely mentioned in Scripture, and yet she's there, and she had a significant role during er- Jesus' earthly ministry and possibly beyond. Okay, so Joanna, that's a teaser for next week. We're going to read um, from John chapter 4. We're going to start out with um, the first few, we're going to read a few verses, and then I'll talk about it, and we'll read a few verses. Does anybody feel led and can see it and would like to read John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6? Just start reading, if you, if you want to. If you're that kid, go for it. Thank you. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John 2, It's okay. Yeah, no, that's fine. Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sikar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. So I put bypass as a little subtitle on this one because um, there were three roads to get from Judea to Galilee. Judea is in the south, remember, in the land, in the Holy Land, and Galilee is in the north, and Samaria is in between. Galilee is where Jesus is from originally, even though he was born in Bethlehem. Remember, Mary and Joseph are from Nazareth in Galilee. And so he's getting there. Um, they were down in Jerusalem to worship at the temple, and they head north. And there are three ways to go. You can go by the Mediterranean Sea. You can go the coastal road. You can go the King's Highway, which is on the other side of the Jordan. Or you can go straight through all the mountainous region. And um, while to go straight through Samaria would be the shortest route possible, most devout Jews refused to go that way. They would go by the coastal route or they would go on the other side, on the east side of the Jordan because to go through Samaria was to become, they didn't want to get too close to the heresy in Samaria. It was this fear of contagion. Uh, I loved how Andrew said in his sermon that um, we we think that our kids will catch Christianity like you can catch the flu. Well, in the first century, devout Jews believed you could catch unfaithfulness to God and uncleanness uh, like the flu. 
And so they didn't want to get close to Samaria. Well, Jesus, it says that Jesus had to go. He had to pass through Samaria in verse 4. He had to pass through Samaria because he was on his father, he was about his father's business. He had a divine appointment to make there in Samaria. And so he had to pass through Samaria. So he goes through Samaria, he goes um, to this town called Sikar. Um, and Samaria itself was um, the capital. There was a city there that was the capital of the northern kingdom. Back long before Jesus' birth, there was a divided kingdom following King Solomon, which was really the heyday for um, the Israelites. The heyday of their geopolitical power was under King Solomon. And after King Solomon, the, the kingdom divided so that the two tribes in the south, Judah and Benjamin, were, um, were centered around Jerusalem as their capital. And then the ten tribes in the north, they eventually developed the city of Samaria as their capital. And if you remember what happened, because of this division and this schism within the, among the twelve tribes of Jacob, what happened was that the northern Israelites could not, they didn't want the people to go back to Jerusalem to worship because they didn't want all that income going into Jerusalem. They didn't want all the income from the um, offerings and sacrifices to go to their rival capital. And so they said, no, no, stay here, stay in Samaria, stay in the northern part of the Holy Land and worship. We'll, we'll provide places for you to worship. And so they provided pr- places on these high hills, but they didn't have the Ark of the Covenant. They didn't have the very presence of God, which was there in the temple in Jerusalem. And so the kings encouraged the people to start worshiping in ways that were not sanctioned by Yahweh. And so they, they worshiped syncretistically, which is a great big word to say they combined. They combined the worship of Yahweh with the way that the Canaanites worshiped, with the way that the peoples in the land around them worshiped. And the Lord did not like that at all. The Lord did not like that at all. In fact, um, the Lord denounced it. And um, as a result of this syncretistic worship that the Lord called idolatry, he then um, sent them into exile. They, um, in 722, the northern kingdom fell to the Assyrian Empire. And those Israelites that were in the northern part of the Holy Land, they were taken away, um, they were taken away into exile in Assyria. And then what um, we find is scripture tells us in 2 Kings chapter 17, um, and I won't read the whole thing, but it t- says specifically that the Assyrians brought people from all around their other conquered lands and brought them back into the Holy Land and planted them, put them in the northern kingdom. And um, so here we go. The king of Assyria brought, brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hama. See, I'm not making you read this. Sepharvim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. And at the beginning of their dwelling there, they did not fear the Lord. And so the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So the king of Assyria was told, The nations that you have carried away and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the law of the God of the land. Interesting. It's a different mindset. They don't realize that the law of the God of the land, that the God of the land is the God of all the land. Therefore he has sent lions among them, and behold, they are killing them, because they do not know the law of the God of the land. And so the king of Assyria commanded one of the priests to go back to the northern kingdom, to the northern part of the Holy Land, and teach them the ways of the Lord. So these people who were not Israelites were settled in the northern part of the Holy Land, and they started to learn some of the ways of Yahweh, but they mixed it. 
They mixed worship of Yahweh with worship of their other gods. And so it says um, they feared the Lord in verse 33, but they also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they've been carried away. So not only were they mixing their worship, um, but they also were intermingling. So the Israelites were marrying non-Israelites. And there was this, it was partly ethnic, but their ethnicity was so tied in with their sense of their divine destiny as the people of God, as the sons of Jacob. And so, um, so there was this horrible detest for Sumerians. And the reason why the Israelites, the Jews in Judea, hated the Sumerians, they thought they were worse than Gentiles because they literally, how racist is this? Come on in. They said that they polluted the blood of the patriarchs by intermingling. So there was this fear of them ethnically. There was this fear of them in terms of their syncretistic and idolatrous religious practices. And in 2 Kings, this historical account ends saying their children, so the nations feared the Lord and they also served their carved images. They worshipped the Lord, but they were also idolatrous. And their children did likewise and their children's children as their fathers did, so they do to this day. They are still idolatrous and we can't have anything to do with them. This is the mindset from Judea. And rightly so. They're, they're trying to keep their nose clean, and they hadn't always kept their nose clean where idolatry was concerned. And so um, that's Samaria in a nutshell. Any, um, any questions about that before we keep reading from John chapter 4? Leslie, go for it. Um, in, in this melding of the um, ideas, was it like a melding of God and the other gods, or was it just, was it rituals? Just rituals that they would, the other religion would do, adapted over into um, yes, the Jews. Both, yeah. both, yes, both. See, okay. I would say all of the above. And then also, if you think about it from a polytheistic mindset, and you see this today within the polytheistic religions in India, um, when Christian preachers and evangelists came there, they were like, "Yes, tell us about this Jesus." Okay, yes, okay, uh huh, uh huh, sure, we'll add him in. <laughs> We'll add in, so it's, it's all of what they already have, plus this one. And so this is the mindset of these, northern, um, of these northern peoples, these peoples in the northern part of the Holy Land who are part Jewish ethnically and part something else, is that they say, well, we'll work in Yahweh into our worship of all these other gods. We'll cover all our bases so we don't get eaten by lions. But it's, a, it's an idolatrous mindset. It's this fear-based mindset, let me cover all my bases. Um, and so the, the Jewish people recognized, you know, the Jews in Judea recognized this is not the way to worship Yahweh. Yahweh commands strict monotheism that he alone would be worshipped. Any other questions? Thank you, Leslie. That was a great question. It's both and. They had practices. They, had, they clearly believed. Um, they had the mindset where they could believe in multiple gods. They right? legalistic, so they had, to, Absolutely. they had to fulfill the rules. They had, right. they had to worship. Which is really helpful for us because we can say, well, I don't burn incense between, uh, you know, among 20 different golden idols, but we do have this fear-based mindset of covering all our bases, yeah. right? Or also this formulaic mindset of, if I do this and this, then God is going to have to do this for me. Right. I scratch his back, he'll scratch my back, no grace. And there's also, I think of it as like the mafia mindset with God. Better. Well, he owes me a favor, right? Yeah. You better. That doesn't go well with the Lord of the Universe. 
Um, and I think he does it. I don't think he's vindictive about it. I think he's just like, oh, really? You're going to do that? That's how you want to. That's how you want to play this. Um, okay, so back to John chapter four. So Jesus had to go through Samaria. He had to go through Samaria so that he could meet this woman. Um, does someone want to talk and to read um, verses seven through twelve? If you can see it from where you're sitting. Anyone? Yeah, go Carol. We'll get you Kathy next. Go Carol. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Get me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Mm. So not only is this person a Samaritan, but she's also a woman. One of the rabbis' prayers of, you know, surrounding Jesus' day and age, we, we have a prayer that has um, trickled down through the rabbinic literature. There was a prayer that was said by Pharisees who that became the rabbis within the rabbinic tradition. I thank you, God, that I am not a slave, a Gentile, or a woman. Women were seen as being, in that day and age, of course, not today, women were seen as being irrational, emotional, and unreliable. Within Jewish law, a woman's testimony was not acceptable in court. Jesus is Lord God. He is the Lord. He is um, God. He was there at the creation of the world. He is part, he created the world. And um, he knows that women, as well as men, are created in God's image. And so he engages with her. Um, women were considered ritually unclean, of course, as well. And so women were not able to worship fully in the temple in Jerusalem in the way that men were in the first century. And women were also forbidden from learning the law, forbidden from learning how to study the law of the Lord, the Torah. And so that was something given. So you know how we have bat mitzvahs today um, within the Jewish congregations? Uh-uh, that would not have happened in the first century. Only bar mitzvahs. Only boys would learn to read scripture and to um, understand it. And then they would teach the women. And there were some women who did understand. And it was, they had gotten it through, um, through men, but they weren't allowed to learn the Torah. Jesus is changing that. You see women all throughout his ministry sitting at his feet. And sitting at the feet of Jesus is a technical term for learning as a disciple would learn from a rabbi. And uh, uh, the word disciple in the Greek means learner. So... Um, the Samaritan woman is being engaged by Jesus. He is engaging her theologically. Um, he's saying, you can learn from me. I'm going to challenge you theologically. I'm going to challenge what you believe. He is engaging with her even though she is a woman. She is unclean um, as a woman. And so then he engages her surrounding this um, well. And what's so interesting is one of the ways that he engages her is that he needs something from her. And this is something that's helpful for us to see. I mean, Jesus, the Lord of the universe, he is God incarnate, but he's thirsty. One of the beautiful things about the incarnation is Jesus actually is thirsty. This is not artifice. He is thirsty. 
It's a dry and dusty land. He is thirsty. And it said in the last passage that it was the sixth hour of the day. It's noon. He's really thirsty. And he doesn't have anything to draw, um, to any container to draw water from the well. So she, he really is asking her about his needs. The fact that he is even talking to her, first of all, is a huge extension. That's huge. And then secondly, that he is willing, he is suggesting that he will drink from the same container as her. That screams unclean. No religious, devout Jew would drink from the same container as a Samaritan. No man would drink from the same container as a woman unless it was his wife. This is very um, risky that Jesus is reaching out to her in this way. So he's engaging her theologically. Um, She's saying, and she's beginning the theological discussion. Isn't that neat? She's talking about Jacob. Our father, she's pointing to the common heritage between Samaritans and Jews. The heritage that the Jews would have have denied because because of that mixed blood. Jesus then hints at something else. I'll read this one. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This is one of my favorite parts. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. We're going to find out in a minute why this woman, why would a woman come to a well at noon in the Middle East to draw water, except that she's trying probably to avoid all the other women. We're going to find out just how much of an outcast she is in the next little bit of the passage. Um, so she goes to the well to draw water when she knows she will not be encountered by the other women. And Jesus is offering and extending to her, even her, this promise of living water. She doesn't understand. She's taking it literally. But he is talking figuratively about the water of the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus says in John chapter 7, he says in chapter 7, verse 37, um, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow, living, uh, flow rivers of living water. And John gives us a little uh, interpretation. Now this he said about the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were yet to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. The Holy Spirit is available to all of us as we believe in Jesus. And that Holy Spirit is likened to living water. And living water was not just water that's stagnant like in a pond. Um, We have some family property on Cape Cod, and there's a pond in the middle of the property. And it is the most, we go swimming in a lot of places, and I go swimming in a lot of muck, some tidal muck. And you think, well, this is terrible. When I was down at the Gulf this summer, someone said, oh, we never swim. In the, in the ocean. We only swim in the pool because the ocean is too gross. Well, I will swim in the ocean, but I will not swim in pond scum. And this pond is covered in disgusting scum. Well, this um, pond scum is stagnant, dead water because there's no outlet. There's no inlet and there's no outlet for the water. Well, wherever scripture talks about living water, living water was like a shower, not a bath. Water that had a, a source and that had a, a drain. Um, And so this um, source and the strain caused the water to flow and to clean whatever it was flowing through. And so um, the Jews, when they had ritual cleansing, ritual baths, and their ritual baths, it was living water flowing through. And that's why the baptism was in the Jordan River, because it was flowing. It would cleanse out um, a person. And so this um, metaphor for this living water, the Holy Spirit, God's presence, 
in us cleanses us from all un- un- sin uh, as we repent we are clean from all sin and then we're filled with new life this living moving water of the Holy Spirit so he promises her this water and then they change the subject again now we hear about her need Jesus says to her go call your husband and come here and the woman answered him I have no husband Jesus said to her you are right in saying I have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband what you have said is true and the woman said to him sir I perceive that you are a prophet I always think this is funny he just told her um, about her sin she says she brings it back she makes it theological again Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship. Well, we hear now about the woman's need. When Jesus tells her to call her husband, she has that grace of being honest. She's honest with him, and she says, I'm, the man I'm married to is not my husband. I, I have no husband, she says. And he says, you are right in saying you have no husband. You have had five husbands, and the one you have is not your husband. In that day and age, divorce was very easy to procure. Divorce was always initiated by the man. The woman didn't have that option. And a man could divorce his wife if she burned his dinner. That was grounds for divorce in the first century. And Jesus talks about this um, in Matthew 18. He looks at it and um, looks down on it and shows how negative it is that it could be that easy to, um, to, to divorce from your wife and so for this for this poor woman this woman has been basically rejected five times um, and this rejection from being married five times um, yes it means that she is um, she's not morally upright um, but it also means she has suffered greatly um, so no man will now have her because she's been married five times she has suffered greatly, um, and she is um, not morally upright, but there is also great suffering behind that. And I think that's something important for us as Christians to remember. Where there is um, moral uh, flaw and fault and sin, when we see especially sexual sin, um, we don't always know what kind of suffering the person has gone through. And that doesn't justify the sin. It doesn't make the sin okay. But it does, um, it does mean that we need to have compassion. And we need to engage rather than disengage. And Jesus is continuing to engage with her. Um, so he starts, they start to talk theological stuff because she's deflecting enough about my personal life. Let's get back to theology. I feel safe talking about theology. Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Where are we supposed to worship? This was a point of difference between the Jews and the Samaritans. The Jews, um, Samaritans would have said on Mount Gerizim they could worship, and the Jews said, no, 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 it has to be Mount Zion at the temple. Um, and there's this sense in which the Lord would bring about right worship in the end days, um, and we see that in Malachi. The Lord prophesied through the prophet Malachi, um, for from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name, the Lord's name, will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. A pure offering is what Malachi prophesies about, that um, the Lord will be worshipped purely, kind of like what Jesus says here, in spirit and in truth. Does someone, Kathy, will you read chapter, can you see it? Sure. Okay. Um, Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming that neither from this mountain nor in Jerusalem can you worship the Father. You worship the people not know. 
we worship what we know for salvation is from Jesus. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I will speak to you in He. He reveals Himself to her. He tells her who He is. Well, this question about worship, He says it doesn't matter because... Jesus is going to fulfill um, the need in the temple. Jesus himself is God with us, Emmanuel, the presence of God dwelling in human flesh, dwelling amongst sinful human beings. Um, Because of the atoning sacrifice of his own blood, we are able to be in fellowship with him. Um, And so Jesus is basically saying what will happen is that there will be worship in the Father in spirit and truth. What a great phrase. That phrase, do you see, it's a Trinitarian formula. The Father, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus, the truth. Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life, as he would say about himself in John chapter 14. This is a Trinitarian formula for worship. And the pure offering that Malachi prophesied about is the result of the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Um, and Jesus then is trying to reveal to her who he is. She, she knows he, he's talking about God's coming salvation. She, like Mary, um, gets it, that salvation is in Jesus Christ. She says, I know that the Messiah is coming. This time when we will worship, all people will worship in spirit and in truth, that would come at the end times. They knew that. And the beginning of the end times occurs with the coming, first coming of Jesus Christ. And the Samaritans, they knew from um, Deuteronomy chapter 18, they knew that um, they knew that there would be a Messiah. The Samaritans, they only used the first five books of the Bible as their Bible. Only the first five books, and that's where they differed from the Jews. Um, but even in their Bible, the Lord prophesied about his coming Messiah, about the coming Son of God. And in um, Moses talks about this um, prophet that God would raise up like him from among you. And it was to him that you should listen. Um, and this great prophet is, um, is the one that they should all put their trust in him, uh, in whom all of, all of the Israelites should put their trust. And what's amazing is that in Acts, um, the apostles use this passage repeatedly to say, this Jesus, the Jesus that died and rose from the dead and is seated at the right hand of the Father, that Jesus is this prophet that Moses prophesied about. And God raised him up, brought him up from among the brothers of Israel, the sons of Israel, from among your brothers. But this raising, the apostles were like, it's a pun. God was saying he would raise him up, but we're saying, yeah, he did. He rose him up from amongst us, but he also rose him from the dead. He has risen from the dead. Jesus is the one who has entered into the holy of holies in heaven by the blood of his own sacrifice to atone for our guilt and for our sin and he has been raised from the dead and he is alluding to this when he's talking to this Samaritan woman he's alluding to that passage and he is indeed the lion of the tribe of Judah she would have also had this passage available to her through the men in her life Um, and this is the blessing of Jacob upon his twelve sons but specifically upon Judah the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. 
so that um, it's clear that this prophecy would be specifically that the Messiah, the coming king, would come from the tribe of Judah. She seems to know that she says, I know that salvation is of the Jews. And that is true. Well, so what else about this? What is it about this woman that is so important for us today, 2,000 years later, as disciples of Jesus Christ? Jesus knows her. Jesus knows her better than anyone else knows her. He knows the circumstances of her life. He knows about the five husbands and the current man. And when she goes, she goes, I'm going I'm to come back to this, don't worry. When she goes to um, talk to her friends in the town, the disciples come back and ask her, you know, they're trying to figure out why is he talking to this woman. And she goes and she tells her neighbors, her neighbors who shunned her because um, of the five husbands, her neighbors who shunned her, she's going out to them and she says, she bears witness, she says, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? It's not an exaggeration. He only told her about the five husbands. But she knows when he has seen into her life that he's seen into her heart. Come see the man who told me who told me everything I ever did. Jesus knows everything that I've ever done, and he knows everything that you've ever done. And even more deeply than that, Jesus knows the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. They are not clean. Let me tell you, they're as unclean as this outcast woman who's got three strikes against her. She is a Samaritan. She is a woman. She is a sinner. She's got three strikes against her, three barriers to relationship with Yahweh. And Jesus reaches out across those barriers. Jesus sees her, he knows her, and he does not judge her. Jesus came in his first coming, it says in John's Gospel, I did not come to judge the world. We know that upon his second coming there will be judgment. But now is the time. Grace is extended to us. Um, Grace is extended to all people, no matter their ethnicity, to Jews and Samaritans, to those of us who are not Jews, who are completely cut off from the people of God. Um, God extends himself in Jesus Christ. Jesus knows her. He does not judge her. And he presents his own self to her. Did you see? Now I'm going to go back. um, That he said at the very beginning, he said, if you knew the gift of God and who it was standing in front of you, if you knew what God's gift was, if you could see God's gift for what it is, Jesus himself standing before her is God's gift to her. I think a lot of men think they're God's gift to women. Jesus really is. Sorry, I couldn't help it. So It's so punny. Uh, but that uh, Jesus really is God's gift to men and women. Um, God's gift to sinful, broken, outcast men and women. And we see this. Paul recognizes this, and he talks about this gift in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 9. And so I'll close with this. God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast.
the gift of God to us is Jesus Christ himself. Grace at the beginning of our faith journey, grace extended to us even while God knows the thoughts and intentions of our hearts in every action we've ever done. And this grace, do you see that this grace is at the beginning of our journey? Um, And then it's all throughout our journey as disciples of Christ. In the coming ages, not just in this age, but in throughout eternity, God shows us grace and mercy at the beginning, and it's almost like he's wooing us to show us the grace and mercy he's going to continue to extend to us throughout this life and the next, so that he might show in the coming ages the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Grace when we first encounter Jesus, grace every day of our Christian journey, grace eternally extended to us through the gift of God, Jesus Christ himself. So let's pray. Oh, dear Lord God, thank you. Thank you for your son, Jesus, and the gift that you have given us in him, um, that gift of mercy and grace extended to us, even though you know what we've done and what we've said and what we've thought. Um, Lord, you are merciful, and we thank you for it, and we praise you for it. Send us out now, um, buoyant on that grace and mercy, uh, receiving the gift of God in Jesus Christ, knowing that we are known and loved. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Go in peace.